Hello and welcome to this week's podcast version of Scripps' Five Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 16th April 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This week, adenovirus vaccines and blood clots, Lily's new moves in genetic diseases, efficacy debate over Chinese COVID vaccines, putting a price tag on innovation, and Sanofi's bullishness on IL-2. Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine has become the second to be linked to very rare but potentially life-threatening blood clots. One of the big questions is, could this be a class effect affecting all adenovirus vector-based vaccines? If so, it could have ramifications for billions of people due to have these shots, but could also provide clues about how to mitigate the risk. The US FDA announced on 13th April it was recommending a temporary precautionary pause to the use of J&J's vaccine after six cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST, combined with low levels of blood platelets, were recorded out of 6.8 million J&J doses administered in the US. That follows restrictions imposed on AstraZeneca's vaccine in the EU after 62 cases of CVST and 24 cases of splanchnic vein thrombosis were recorded up to 22nd March, 18 of which were fatal. Andrew McConaughey reports that independent vaccine safety experts broadly agree there could be indeed a class effect across adenovirus-based vaccines, which all use a modified virus to deliver the gene for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein into cells. The AstraZeneca vaccine uses the chimpanzee-derived CHADOX1 adenovirus vector, while J&J's vaccine is based on a similar human AD26 vector. Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Centre for Biologics Evaluation and Research and its COVID-19 vaccine lead, stopped short of confirming his belief in a class effect, but hinted that the evidence pointed in that direction. Speaking at a joint FDA and Centres for Disease Control press call on 13th April, Marks pointed out a key similarity between the AZ and J&J vaccines was that CVST was experienced alongside thrombocytopenia, a highly unusual combination and not seen before. Eli Lilly has made another move in bolstering its presence in genetic diseases by driving $139 million Series B financing for Jaguar gene therapy and its pipeline that includes potential one-time treatments for type 1 diabetes and autism. The US company only came out of stealth mode at the end of February this year, led by key members of the leadership team at Avexis, the gene therapy company Novartis bought in 2018 for $8.7 billion and resourced by private equity healthcare specialist Deerfield Management. Now Lilly has jumped aboard, co-leading the Series B round with Deerfield and others. Andrew Adams, head of new therapeutic modalities at Lilly, said the firm was excited to support Jaguar's endeavour to develop novel gene therapies following the breaking science in this rapidly advancing field. Kevin Grogan reports that Lilly made its first significant moves into the gene therapy space last year. In November, it unveiled a collaboration with Precision Biosciences centred on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and targets in two other genetic disorders. Precision banked $100 million in cash up front plus a $35 million equity investment from Lilly. A month later, Lilly agreed to buy Prevail Therapeutics and its two clinical stage gene therapy programs for dementia and Goucher's disease. 
For Jaguar, it will use the new proceeds to advance its initial preclinical pipeline of adeno-associated virus 9-based gene therapies, which are targeting rare as well as much more common genetic conditions. Its lead candidate is JAG101 for galactosemia, a metabolic condition that impairs the body's ability to process and produce energy from galactose. Money from the Series B will also go towards advancing JAG201, a gene therapy for a specific genetic cause of autism spectrum disorder. Jaguar said there are currently no treatment options available for the 30,000 patients in the US that have the defect it is targeting. A new real-world study conducted from 19th January to 25th March reviewing the efficacy of the Coronavac vaccine from Sinovac Biotech, a Beijing-based developer, could fuel fresh doubts about the effectiveness of Chinese COVID-19 vaccines. The study, unveiled on 7th April by preprint website medrxiv.com and not peer-reviewed, focused on the region of Manaus, a Brazilian city that has been hard hit by the virus. Brian Yang reports that previous study results for Coronavac had shown a protection rate of 50.7%. The latest results are from a matched test-negative case control study to estimate the effectiveness of an inactivated vaccine on local Brazilian health workers. They show that vaccination with at least one dose was associated with a 0.5-fold reduction in the odds of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection during the period 14 days or more after receiving the first dose, noted the authors. Roughly 50% protection rate seems to reinforce recent controversial comments from China's top infectious disease official, Gao Fu, who recently said that protection is not high for Chinese COVID-19 vaccines in general. Both Sinovac's Coronavac and two previously China-approved vaccines from state-owned Sinopharm are based on an inactivated virus platform, a mature technology commonly used in China but not commonly used in the West. There had already been murmured doubts about the efficacy of Chinese COVID-19 vaccines, but Gao's comments, as well as the latest data from Brazil, seem to show the low protection rates are confirmed. The new data also raised the urgency of changes to current vaccination strategies to offer better protection. A new report from the US Congressional Budget Office provides many data points about how much the public and private sectors spend on biopharma research and development, but also underscores how hard it is to put a price tag on innovation. The 30-page report, issued on 8th April, draws on data from the National Institutes of Health, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, and other sources, to provide a sense of how much money the government and drug makers have spent on basic research and clinical development and what that means for the supply of biopharma innovation. Alaric Diarman writes that the relationship between R&D spending and innovation is often examined, and just as much within the industry as it looks for more efficacy and efficiency as by the policy community working on drug pricing reform. It has been pointed out that this is not a linear relationship, and while R&D investment and outputs are linked, there are many forces that make it impossible to draw clear conclusions. What the latest CBO report shows is that the tabulation is getting more complicated as more data come together. Most of the data points provided in the reports are well known and certainly useful for people hoping to get some background on how many of the 210 drugs the US FDA approved between 2010 and 2016 were based on NIH-funded basic research, the answer being all of them, or how many fewer drugs would reach the market over the next 20 years if the federal government negotiated drug prices, 
the answer being about 38. While it's hard to quantify the benefit of drugs introduced over the past 20 plus years, if not just the past year with the introduction of the COVID-19 vaccines, it is possible to tally up how much has been spent on R&D and how that has grown over time. The report notes that the NIH has received much more than $700 billion in federal funding over the last two decades, much of it funding basic research in life sciences. It also cites a farm estimate that the trade group's member firms spent $83 billion on drug R&D in 2019, compared with $38 billion in 2000 and just $5 billion in 1980. Finally, Alaric also reports that Sanofi is still betting high on the synthetic biology platform it acquired when it bought Synthorx, along with the lead drug candidate from that platform, Thor707. Early data are promising, but it may be some time before Thor707 demonstrates how much it can stand out in an increasingly competitive environment for interleukin-2 therapies. The French firm presented Phase 1 data from the Phase 1-2 Hammer study of Thor 707 on 10th April at the AACR annual meeting. Out of 45 patients analysed in the abstract, three, one receiving monotherapy and two more receiving the drug in combination with Merck's Keytruda, had partial responses. Sanofi acquired San Diego-based Synthorx in December 2019 for $2.5 billion dollars with the expectation that Thor 707 could become a best-in-class therapy and serve as a foundation for future immuno-oncology combinations. Thor 707 is a not-alpha version of IL-2 pegylated to block the cytokine's interaction with the IL-2 receptor alpha chain while it engages with the beta chain and also avoids the vascular leak syndrome side effect historically seen with recombinant IL-2, which was a very early immunotherapy for cancer but carried significant toxicity. Sanofi said that while the interim hammer data are early, they align with what researchers observed in preclinical testing of Thor 707, that the drug activates the anti-tumor immune response without an increased risk of alpha-mediated toxicities like VLS or eosinophilia. That's all for this week. Many thanks as always for listening. And a reminder that all these stories in full are linked in the script article accompanying this podcast and that very much more digital content is accessible through subscribing and signing in. Bye for now.